All right. Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. Wow, I like that. Talk back to me. I like it. All right. Come on. Let's go. It's uh, good to see you all here gathered in person in the museum district. Want to say hello to our friends over at uh, Timber Grove as well at 8200 Washington Avenue. Y'all say hi. All right, we love y'all at uh, Timber Grove. Our Timber Grove campus is every bit as part of the story as we are here in this room. And same goes for those of you joining us online as part of the Stories Online campus. And that means wherever you are in the world, you can be a part of the story just by tuning in on whatever platform you prefer. Facebook, uh, YouTube, or even the story.church is uh, our website. It's a great way to, to tune in there. And so just want to say welcome. I want to say uh, a special welcome to those that are here for the first time, or maybe you're still kind of getting acquainted to the story, and the story's kind of a, a new thing for you. It's a church, but it's, it's a weird church, and you're trying to figure out, like, what's going on. I understand. Uh, I want you to know that the story exists and has existed for seven years now uh, to be a community of skeptics and believers together following Jesus. We, our mission is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, or at least to consider following him and to, to bring your questions and your doubts about the Bible and religion. Hey, we get it. There's all kinds of good reasons to question organized religion, including Christianity and, and religious professionals like me. So don't let me uh, get, in, get in the way of that. Uh, I, I really just want to serve as much as I can as kind of a a conduit. I want to say thank you real quick to everybody who has already made their uh, commitments known financially for the rest of the year. These, this is just for folks that already call the story home. Newcomers, just tune me out for a sec. Um, we just started uh, seeking commitments two weeks ago. We've already received 25% of, of the goal. I know many of you are still praying and, and, uh, and thinking about that. Just know that you can get those commitment cards in um, for second, third, and fourth quarters of 2022. All we need to know is to what extent you and or your family intend to support the story financially so we can be good stewards of, uh, of our finances and resources for the rest of this year. You can submit those cards and the donate here boxes in the back online. If you're watching online, just go to the story.church slash commitment. And those of you at Timber Grove, you've already done this, most of you. So don't worry about uh, submitting another commitment unless you want to commit more, in which case, bring it. Come on. All right. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, we're going to get to this uh, message now. Uh, if you're new to church or new to the story, what, what's about to happen, I guess, is uh, 30 minutes or so of of me uh, uh, working through a topic or theme that is a pressing or felt need in the real world. And I'm gonna uh, approach it through the, the lens of the Bible and what Christians believe. And you can take it or leave it and, and I'll love you the same. And so will God. So, so um, that's sort of the deal. And I also meant what I said earlier when I said that you should not let me get in the way. Um, if you, for example, were the person in front of me on Bissonette Street this week and you heard me screaming at you because my window was open, you, first of all, first thing I'll say is just learn to use the turning lane. That's all I ask, okay? That's all I ask. <laughs> Secondly, I'm really sorry for screaming at you. And yes, I'm a pastor. Um, so uh, that's who you're dealing with today. And I, I hate to tell you, it doesn't stop there. That's more of a feature than a bug as far as I'm concerned. It's a daily reality of my existence. I almost got kicked out of another Little League baseball game this week. <laughs> True story. I'm not even coaching anymore. And... And I don't know, the umpire just made a really, really bad call. And I let him know about it. True. And uh, I asked him if he, was, if he was in charge or if the other team's coach was in charge because the other team's coach had, had complained and gotten the call that he was looking for. And the umpire did not appreciate that and said, 
I quote, do you want to stay for the rest of this game? And I said, I'd like to stay and watch a fair game, at which point I thought I was done. I thought I was done. <laughs> By the grace of God, he let me stay and watch the rest of the game. I'm a mess, y'all. There's no denying it. I am. I am just a mess. I'm trying. It's not that I'm okay being a mess. I'm still working on it. God's working on me like we used to sing when we were kids. God's still working on me, right? And so it's like I'm the same way today. It's not that I'm satisfied with it, with how I am. I just want you to know because otherwise sometimes churches can prop up personalities like the, the person up front in the spotlight is supposed to be the one you're following. Don't do that here. You'll find yourself in all sorts of trouble, <laughs> angrier than you should be and getting thrown out of your kids' games. And so don't follow me. Only follow me insofar as it, it leads you closer to Jesus and to what I believe to be the truth of God's word as revealed in Scripture and through Christ. And so just follow me to that extent <laughs> and no further, because I'm just like you. Like I'm, I'm a mess, and I have trouble making sense of life sometimes. I have trouble with the world the way that it is, because I realize not only am I a mess, but the whole world's a mess. People are crazy. The news is just out of control. It just seems so murky and just just the moment when you think you've got the good guys and the bad guys separate in your mind the bad guys are good and the good guys are bad and and uh, you don't even know who you're pulling for anymore you know your favorite baseball team their only championship involves some trash cans banging and it's just ruins the whole thing it's always going to have an asterisk beside it in the record books your favorite like politicians no matter what side of the aisle you on i promise you the politicians you think aren't corrupt really are you'll find out eventually and it's going to break your heart yet again your favorite tv preachers are all having affairs your favorite fresh prince is slapping comedians it's like it's you just can't make sense of the world how do you not get discouraged how do you not feel disoriented in a world like the one we're living in and how do you avoid landing on the conclusion that God, if he cared once, he, he surely doesn't care anymore. Like he got one look at TikTok and was like, I'm done with, I'm just, I can't, I can't even, <laughs> literally. Okay, so how do you avoid landing there? Because most people still believe in God. Even if they're not religious, people still believe in God. But more and more, it seems to be the, a common conception that if God is real, he exists. He, he set everything in motion, but now he's hands off. He's sort of left us to fend for ourselves and for whatever reason. Maybe he just got tired of us or TikTok or whatever. Maybe, maybe that's just who he is. He's just like the deists have always said. He's just a watchmaker who set the wheels in motion and now it's up to us and we're on our own here. How do we avoid landing there, this idea of a, an indifferent um, God? It's hard to know how to make a sense of this world that we are living in and, and why God wouldn't forsake it and why God wouldn't forsake me, why he wouldn't leave us uh, to fend for ourselves. So life is cloudy instead of clear. It's, uh, it, it's a little bit... Uh, it's a little bit um, gray instead of black and white, okay? So when life gets that way, when it feels that way, how, how do you avoid believing that God has forsaken you? Well, it's kind of what I'd like to talk about today. Um, 
I, I thought I'd share a video with you just to illustrate the kind of how I feel some days living in this world. And, and I'm going to warn you, this video is a little bit intense, but I think it perfectly illustrates exactly the range of emotions I endure or encounter on any given day. Because of my incapacity to compute uh, the, the, the craziness of this world and whether God is with me or not, whether everything's okay or whether everything is falling apart. There's this kid whose parents, I think, might have forced him to do this awful zip line experience, and they put a camera in front of him, and we got to see the whole thing. Are you ready for a little bit of uh, kid trauma today? Can we do this? Okay, so don't be triggered by this. It's pretty intense. I told them to turn the volume down. Okay, this is how I feel most days. So you get it, right? Don't you feel that way? Like, this is amazing. I think I'm going to fall, though. Like, that got me. Uh, 10% of today's offering will go to support Cal's uh, therapy bills later in life. All right. Um, this is how it can so often feel. Like, how do you avoid feeling like you're just hanging by a thread on your own, especially when the darkness closes in, you know? Like, when you're, when you're really going through it. Uh, how do you avoid feeling like cynical about things? That's probably my greatest um, challenge is overcoming cynicism or apathy that sets in when you start to feel like you're on your own and you could fall at any moment, right? Okay, this is, what, this is kind of what I'm getting at today with this message. I want to talk about um, this idea of being uh, left to our own devices by God. Um, and if, another way of putting that is forsaken by God. Okay, so this is part six of six. This is the last part in our Purpose of Pain series. We've been talking about different kinds of pain. Today, we're talking about the forsakenness of God, being forsaken. Okay, so the word forsaken means, uh, the definition is to be renounced or turned away from entirely. Okay, so I think this is one thing that's, uh, that, that's very tempting for us to all believe. Now, while this is a conceivable thought that God has somehow forsaken this world that he made, forsaken us in it, and left us to our own devices, this is not at all what Christianity teaches. Okay, so this is actually, this idea is actually antithetical to the Christian worldview, um, even though a lot of Christians uh, so easily feel this way, okay? Uh, and anybody with any even secondhand knowledge of Scripture knows that the word forsaken plays a key role in the key story of the Bible, the crucifixion of Jesus. While he's on the cross, he says a few things. One of the very few words that he says from the cross is forsaken. 
right? So Jesus is sort of uh, meeting us where we're at here a little bit. It's like Jesus, this was on his mind at his darkest moment too. And this is found in Matthew chapter uh, 27, verse 45 and 46. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew 27. Y'all have got uh, Bibles in your chair backs here. Um, and uh, if you've got one close by at Timber Grove or online, y'all follow along as well. It's real simple, uh, two verses. Matthew 27, verse 45. All right, so the crucifixion began at about nine in the morning. So he's been on the cross for three hours because the first two words here are from noon. But it covers three hours, from noon till three. So Jesus was on the cross for six hours. So from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Darkness throughout the Bible symbolized um, distancing of God, God turning his face away for whatever reason. So darkness here means the same thing, that, that God is turning his face away from this event, Jesus being crucified. Darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right. So was Jesus forsaken by God? Or did he just feel that way? It would be understandable if he just felt that way because, of course, he was going through the worst imaginable thing, crucifixion. The hand of the Romans didn't get worse or more painful than that. Maybe he just felt forsaken. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about this. If you, uh, if you know me and my story at all, you know that um, my uh, adult life, the first 13 years of my career as a pastor were spent preaching and leading churches, although I was not a pastor. I was not a, I was not a Christian. Y'all know that? Have I told you this before a few times? Some of you are like, yes, we've heard it, Pastor. <laughs> uh, I was not a Christian for, for, from 2000 to 2013. I, I, I know I wasn't a Christian because I didn't believe in the, the very basic foundations of the Christian faith, things that every Christian is supposed to believe, right? So I'm not talking about like the peripheral issues and stuff like that. I'm talking about like the core things. I didn't believe that Jesus physically, bodily, actually rose from the dead. I thought it was more of a metaphor or something to inspire people, to show us how life overcomes death and light overcomes darkness. And if Jesus' decaying bones still sit in a tomb somewhere in the Holy Land, it doesn't really matter because the point of it all is that love wins. That's what I thought because I thought I was smart and I thought that smart people don't believe that anyone comes back from the dead. Okay, um, that's just the, the start of it. I also didn't believe that Jesus was necessarily unique. He was like my guy. He was a guy I followed because he's a good dude. He said some cool things and, and he, I, I, like, I like his vibe. I just gonna, I'm, I'm going with Jesus. But you can go with other religious leaders, other gurus and teachers and be just as well off. Jesus was not unique in my view back then. He was just someone that was respectable and someone who's, if I was honest, someone whose followers got a little carried away and exalted him to the place of a God posthumously. That was what I believed in my heart of hearts. Now that part I wouldn't say on a Sunday morning, but a lot of this other stuff I, I said on Sunday mornings. And believe me, that still weighs on me. Like you try going to sleep at night thinking, man, I spent 13 years misleading people from a pulpit. Why do y'all think I preach so hard now? 
Like, why do y'all think I go after it so hard? It's like I'm making up for something. Y'all ever feel that way? Well, I am in my, in my mind sometimes. Uh, I'm trying to make amends for the ways that I misled folks in those days. But I just thought I was too smart to believe those things. And this idea that we just sang about, actually, the idea that um, his punishment, my peace, y'all heard that line in the song? His punishment, my peace, his punishment, my, my peace. Like we sang that here in, in, in this place. My apologies if y'all didn't sing that at Timber Grove. But we sang this song where one of the lines is his punishment, my peace. The idea that Jesus was punished in my place. Like I was supposed to be punished, but Jesus stood in as a substitute so I wouldn't have to be punished. That to me just seemed too rudimentary, too uh, unsophisticated. So I had a lot of trouble believing that, that Jesus died for my sins. Because why would he have to? If God is love and love wins, why can't God just love us through our sins and just call it a day? And I had liberal professors in my, in my seminary, like, I mean, theologically, not politically liberal, but just real left of center theologically professors in my seminary telling me not to look at Jesus's death that way. He didn't die for your sins. Like, that's archaic thought. We should look at it instead as a social injustice that was done to a man of color by an empire threatened by his rhetoric and by his followers, which, look, by the way, is true. That's part of the story. And you shouldn't neglect that side of the story. There is a socio-political reality of the cross. However, to reduce the events of Calvary down to mere politics is to miss the forest for the trees. And that's what I was doing during that time of my life. I was missing the forest for the trees because, you know, the, the trees were manageable, intelligible, something I could make sense of and feel smart about and educated and informed on. And I didn't, I didn't have to sound like those Christians that I never wanted to be like. And so I, 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 that's the way I led my life and the way I preached for 13 years. Why would God forsake his own son? My professors, I remember my professors told me, you shouldn't say that because it, you shouldn't say Jesus was punished for us because it's, it's divine child abuse, they told me. What kind of loving father would allow his son to be abused in this way? That was um, my thinking back then. Now, times have changed, obviously. 2013, everything changed. In the Holy Land, y'all know the story. Many of you do. If you're new, uh, I'll catch you up next week at Easter, probably. <laughs> That's probably going to be the Easter sermon. Uh, it's, it's, uh, how can you not give your testimony on the biggest day of the year? Just everything God has done for me, it's un unbelievable. 2013, I became a Christian, presented with evidence I could not refute about the resurrection of Jesus. And ever since that time in 2013, I've gone through this process of unlearning much of the things that I learned in seminary or through my own thinking, and I'm still going through some of it. I went through some of my old sermons at the story when we were just getting started, and I was still preaching some heresies that I had not yet unlearned. Things like, I, I said this in a Good Friday sermon in one of the first years at the story, that Jesus wasn't really forsaken by God but he probably felt forsaken. How could he not? Who wouldn't feel forsaken? And what that, what that means is that when we look at a passage that's where Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? And we say that could not have happened because it offends my sensibilities. 
What we're doing is we are giving precedent to our feelings over the plain reading of Scripture. And one thing that I've learned since 2013 is that when it comes down to my sentiments and feelings and emotions versus a plain reading of Scripture, I would do well to pause before going with my feelings and to give Scripture its due credence. Its shelf life uh, is a testimony in itself. It, it probably knows, it probably has more to say. It's probably wiser than I. So that's my assumption now. That wasn't my assumption for those 13 years I spoke of earlier, but now I've learned to be careful not to sanitize or sweeten scriptures that offend my sensibilities because we can easily miss some deeper truth. The truth is, uh, sometimes the truth hurts. And just because the truth makes you squeamish, or queasy doesn't make it any less true. And if it's the truth, it should take precedent over my opinions. And the truth about today's passage is that Jesus clearly said he was forsaken in that moment, at least for a time. He didn't just, he didn't say, God, I feel forsaken. He didn't even say, God, my hands, my feet, my head. He said, why have you forsaken me? plain and simple, and so we should be willing to wrestle with that. And what I would posit to you today is that the forsakenness of Jesus, and indeed, the God-forsakenness of Jesus is something we all should be grateful for. And I wanna share a few different perspectives and reasons why we should all rejoice at the God-forsakenness of Jesus instead of just dismissing it as something that's offensive or, or difficult to get our heads around, all right? The first reason is that when Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross, justice was done. Justice was done. What I mean with this is that the Bible treats sin as, a, as an offense or a violation against God's moral laws. And um, the, the, the presupposition there is that we all know right from wrong. We all have consciences, regardless of your religious background or where you were born or when. Everybody kind of knows the difference between something that's right and something that's wrong. And yet, even though we have that knowledge, we've done wrong again and again, like me at the Little League game or on Bissonette Street in the turning lane or whatever. It's like we all still violate God's law. And when you think about a lifetime of wrongs, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the debt you rack up. And the, the word debt is key there because the Bible speaks about the problem of sin in economic terms. And so there is this sort of economic component of a, of a financial debt that you rack up by these wrongs that you accrue over time. And, and we know exactly what the Bible's saying because we know in our heart of heart that's how it works. We know that a solid justice system must properly punish wrongdoers. But you don't punish all wrongdoers the same, do you? Like some wrongdoings are worse than others and deserve worse punishments than others. They rack up a bigger debt that must be paid to society. You follow me? If you let somebody borrow something and they return it damaged, like there's a debt that they've incurred. And what you do with that debt is entirely up to you. You can charge them for it. You can be passive aggressive and say it's fine, but really in your heart of hearts, you are holding it against them. <laughs> Hashtag marriage. Or you can forgive them. 
which I'm going to talk about more in a minute, but I, I want us to think about this. Instead of us being the one who is wrong, think about this from God's perspective. It, it's, it's almost, the, the Bible almost gives us this image that God has given us earth and life and, and everything on loan. It's like a, it's like a, a tenant landlord situation where we are entrusted with the stewardship uh, of the, the world uh, as if it's God's home and he's not physically here for a while, but we're entrusted to take care of his stuff. He's like, take care of my stuff. One day I'm coming back and I'll get my stuff again. Just take care of it in the meantime. And while he's gone, you know, he's like, take care of all the animals. And we, we, we don't, like we don't even like... Like half the species die, or I don't know how many species have died, but it's like, but it's like you know, it's, we're not really taking care of things as well as we should. And, and uh, we have a message coming up in the future about the, the, the climate and environment and all that stuff. And I know this is an important topic to take care of God's creation. Of course, every Christian should be concerned about the, the state of affairs in the world. But God's like, take care of... Uh, Take care of my, my house. You can watch TV while I'm gone, even if you just look after things. And, and so we watch TV, but we don't just watch the free channels. We're like racking up pay-per-view bills with UFC fights and who knows what else we're looking at pay-per-view-wise on God's TV. And he comes back and there's a bill unpaid on his TV. Or he's like, you can use my computer. And God comes home. We're like, just whatever you do, just don't look at the search history. On, uh, please, God, just don't look at the things I've looked at with your stuff. Okay, so it's, it's like this deal where over time we rack up a debt because of the things we've not done or the things we've done wrong. And when you think about that debt incurring uh, on our behalf over time and all the sins and misgivings, misdoings, things we left undone, time we've wasted, all of it, it can be really overwhelming. But the Bible's uh, suggestion is that one day there will be a reckoning. Indeed, if God is just, there must be a reckoning. And so God, like us, when we are wronged, God has a choice to make in the face of this debt that is owed on behalf of all of humankind in all time and places, he could make us pay rightfully. He could say it's okay, but really his anger is just boiling against us. Or he could forgive us. Here's the trick about forgiveness. And anyone who's ever truly forgiven, you know this. When you forgive someone for what they've done to you, when you truly forgive them, and not just in your feelings, but when you really forgive them, it means you incur the debt yourself. You absorb it. You write it off of your books. You take the hit emotionally, whatever, like psychologically, financially even, you pay what they owed. And that's what forgiveness looks like. And Jesus on the cross forsaken by God is the reckoning. Not just for then, but for all time, not just for some, but for all people. And the reckoning of God in that moment that he turned his face away from Jesus on the cross, the reckoning of God must be worth something. And the question posed by scripture is, what would all the blood of God himself poured out be worth? What amount of debt would that cover? And the only logical answer, if Jesus is God, sinless and pure and love embodied, would be that it must cover every debt. All of it. There cannot be any amount of sin 
or debt that is greater than the reckoning of Jesus forsaken on the cross would cover. So the, the, the idea is that Jesus was forsaken instead of us, meaning instead of all of us. And this is something truly to be grateful for. The second reason that Jesus, uh, his forsakenness on the cross is something to be joyful about is that Jesus uh, being forsaken uh, meant that evil was exposed. Evil was exposed, all right? So what I mean here is that there's more going on in this scene. It's kind of wild, actually, when you think about it. Because when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't saying it for the first time. Or it wasn't the first time those words had been spoken in Scripture. So I want to set the scene for you here. Imagine uh, you're outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Jesus is being crucified next to two thieves, and probably many others were being crucified alongside them. That's just how the Romans did it. He was hanging there for hours on end, surrounded not only by those closest to him, uh, his mom and his best friend John and some other women were gathered, but he was really surrounded by his enemies, Roman soldiers, centurions, most importantly, the Pharisees. His detractors, listen, they were the ones who instigated the process that wound up with the Romans crucifying him. They didn't need to do it that way. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, could have had Jesus dealt with on their own terms. With Rome's permission, they could have stoned him to death or, or, or they could have exiled him from the community without Rome's permission. They didn't need to do it this way. They wanted to do it this way. Why did they need Jesus on the cross? Because Deuteronomy 21, 23, their Bible said, any man who, who dies hanging on a tree is under God's curse. That's where Jesus's enemies wanted him to die so that they, as he died, could point to him hanging on a tree and then point to their Bibles in Deuteronomy 21, 23 and say, look, you followers of Jesus, you were wrong about him. He is under God's curse. How can the true Messiah be under God's curse? It was a gangster move. Like it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a, a play, really. It was, it was humanity at its worst. So they had him charged with sedition against Rome. That's why he died on a cross. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He is exposing their sinister evil. And this is what I mean. That line was the first line of a very well-known song in those days. All the Pharisees, in order to be admitted as part of the Pharisaic brotherhood, had to memorize the Hebrew songbook, which is in the Bible. It's called Psalms. The book of Psalms was the Hebrew songbook. They memorized all 150 songs. And if you know anything about music and memory, you know that when someone sings the first line of a very well-known song, you can't not hear the rest of that song, right? Any Swifties in the house? I can sing a Taylor Swift song. All right, let's not do that. Let's, so, amazing grace. All right, you can't not do it, right? You just proved my point. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First of all, it's very unlikely that he said it. It's more likely that even as he struggled to breathe, he sang it as best he could. Because this was such, it would be, if he said it, it would be like just saying the words of amazing grace, which no one ever does. Amazing grace, how sweet this is. Nobody ever says it. You sing it. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Same thing. And the song is found in Psalms chapter 22. So this is what I'd like you to look at if you, if, if you wouldn't mind. Just open your Bible to Psalm 22 or follow with me on the screen. We're gonna read parts of this song together. Okay. Keep in mind, the Pharisees knew the Psalms by heart. Jesus sang the first line. And so this, and we're about to read, is what would have come to mind for Jesus's enemies. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. Then verse six, skip ahead to verse six with me. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned, that's another word for forsaken, by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. That's actually something someone said to Jesus on the cross, if you recall. Verse 12 now. Many bulls surround me, the bulls of Bashan, strong, unstoppable animals, the bulls of Bashan. I think Jesus is alluding to the Roman soldiers here. Roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. (laughs) My heart has turned to wax. It melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Remember when Jesus said, I thirst. We're going to talk about that on Friday, a good Friday service. This is a prophecy toward that, um, that saying from the cross. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. This is where the Pharisees come in, I think. Dogs surround me. Dogs in the Bible were scavengers, bottom feeders, wild dogs. Cats, on the other hand, never even in the Bible. (laughs) Just so you know. Okay. Lower than dogs. Okay. All right. Okay. I was on a very serious point there. I got distracted. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. These are the lines of the song the Pharisees were recalling when Jesus sang, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. All this stuff happened to Jesus. This song was written a thousand years before by King David, who sang it long before Jesus walked the earth. But that's not the end of the song either. The end goes this way. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. This is a futuristic prophecy. He has done it. Or another way of saying that would be, it is finished. Jesus is giving us a a layered message here. Was he forsaken? I believe he was for a time. 
there was much more happening at the cross that day because in his moment of being forsaken, he was exposing real evil in the world. And what this means, why this means we can be grateful is because there are people along your journey who have done you so wrong. There are people who have meant evil against you, people that have cursed you or cursed at you, people that have tried to harm you, people that have done injustice before the Lord against you. And the fact that Jesus sang this song, this line from the cross says, Jesus saw their evil then, and he sees the evil of those who've done you wrong as well, and there will be a reckoning. Evil never goes unchecked. Third, and finally, I wrap up here. Going a little long. I know that's out of the ordinary. <laughs> that was a joke. Okay. So <laughs> third, um, the, the reason Jesus, uh, it's, uh, it's good news that Jesus was forsaken is that because Jesus was forsaken, what it really means is that you will never be forsaken. Right? Colossians 2.14 says, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, Jesus set uh, that aside, our debt, nailing it to the cross. I uh, can't help but remember the times when I used to say things like Jesus wasn't um, unique or he didn't really raise from the dead or he wasn't really forsaken. He just felt that way on the cross like any of us would. During those days, I remember feeling this ever-present sense of cynicism and apathy I did feel forsaken by God in those days. I felt like I was barely hanging on. I felt like, what's his name? I forgot his name. Cal, thank you. I felt like Cal, just hanging on by a thread, not really sure if this is the day that I, it's all over, just barely hanging on, flying through life, not knowing if anyone was there to catch me if I fell. I felt that way, but I don't feel that way anymore. There is an inverse um, relation, relationship, an inverse correlation between your understanding of Jesus's forsakenness and your own. The more you trust and choose to believe that Jesus was entirely forsaken for a time, the more you can trust that you will never be. It's because there is no amount of evil that you can add on to what was already done to Jesus. And when he paid the debt that he paid, he didn't just pay the amount that was owed by humanity up to 30 AD. Like he didn't just pay it in, in a certain time for a certain people. If the blood of Jesus is the royal, innocent blood of God, then it must be enough to cover all sin of all time. There must not be a limit to it. In fact, in the early church, there was this idea that when Jesus died, he descended into hell. If you know the Apostles' Creed, I know it's like three people here that probably know the Apostles' Creed, all right? So it's, it's okay. We're here for non-religious people. It's understandable. But it said Jesus descended into hell. This idea was that Jesus came back and told all of his buddies where he had been. He stormed the gates of hell, knocked on the door, Satan comes to the peephole and goes, oh my God, this place is a mess. What am I going to do? Like he panicked. There's just this great image of Jesus storming the gates of hell, walking right up to the bar there and opening a tab that remains open to this day. A tab that can never be overspent. A line of credit that you can never exceed. That's what it means. That's what it would mean if Jesus is really forsaken by God on the cross. 
that you will never be. And when you do feel forsaken, it's a feeling that comes and it goes. And if you know someone who feels absolutely alone and forsaken, forsaken, it's not because God's grace doesn't extend to them. It's that they haven't yet realized the extent to which God went in Jesus to love them and forgive them and set them free. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this uh, reminder today. As hard as it is to wrap our heads around the forsakenness of Christ on the cross, like how could that happen? It is in fact good news for all of us because we wander through life feeling alone and hung out to dry, forsaken, forgotten. But Lord, you came to set us free from that shame that shackles us to our past and our mistakes and all the things we left undone. Lord, help us to see how great and wide your forgiveness is, how free we are when we receive it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.